Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In the summer of 2008, Irish boxing hit fever pitch. The entire country was transfixed on Beijing and one man in particular, Kenneth Egan. Egan went on to win an Olympic silver medal and brought it home to Clintalkin. From there, he was a national hero thrust into the celebrity spotlight, but his toughest fight was still to come. Tomorrow, the Tokyo Olympics begin and I'm delighted to say we're joined here by the man himself, Kenneth Egan. Kenneth, you're, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, let's get this one out of the way first. So it is Kenneth, it's not Kenny or Ken. It's always been Kenneth. That's what it was christened. That's what my mum calls me. Uh, I think the Kenny fever kicked off when I was in Beijing. A few of the lads off the team, Paddy Barnes and that were from the north. And they'd called Kenneth up there Kenny. And that's how that stuck when I come back from, from, from the Olympics, you know, just Kenny fever. Um, and I went with that, you know, but uh, no, my real name was Kenneth. It always has been <laughs> Kenneth, yeah. <laughs> if your mother loved you as Kenneth, I'm, I'm sure she wasn't happy with Kenny Fever, was she? She didn't like the Kenny in any way, you know, the way I turned out, you know, with the, with, the, with, with the partying and the alcohol use and stuff like that. So she likes, she liked the Kenneth to come back to the house. Uh, and that's where I am now today is, is Kenneth. So I'm in a good place that, in that sense. Great to hear. We'll talk about your yep. story in particular as we go on. But it is, of course, the eve of the Olympics. It all begins tomorrow. What's going on? Over there now, would you imagine what's what's the feeling the, the night before for for athletes? Of course, you were there. Yeah. It's a very different Olympic Games this time around, yeah. isn't it? You know, with uh, the COVID. But like these lads and ladies are very focused on the job in hand, and that's to go out there and perform. And I, I'd imagine that's what's been ingrained in them for the last number of months, getting out and getting the best performance that each each athlete can do. You know, um, and obviously a medal would be nice, but staying focused, keeping an eye on their weights uh, and just getting out there and just enjoying it. You know, that's what it's about. These guys have worked so hard to qualify for the games. They've qualified and now they just have to go out and enjoy it. And if they put on a good performance, please God, they can go out there and, 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 you know, obviously stand on that podium, which would be fantastic. What is the... I know it's very different this year, but what generally is the Olympic Village like on a night like tonight? Is it the best place in the world to be or is there an awful lot of that nervous energy flying around the place. Yeah, there's a lot of nervous energy. You know, you're obviously there a couple of days previous um, and on a full house, you're walking by the superstars, the Rafael Nadal's, the Roger Federer's. They're sitting in the canteen having, having their grub beside you. So you're kind of starstruck for a while, but at the end of the day, you're an Olympian just like them. You're going out there to perform and try and win medals. So there will be a bit of nervous energy floating around. Obviously, then you'd have your open ceremony, which I don't know what way it's going to work this time around. Um, so that'd be nice to attend if it was. But uh, look, they have a job. To do that's to go out there and and and, and do their best on the, on the on the world stage right let's go right the way back with your own story let's go right the way back to Clondalk and the, the 80s into the 90s what was it what was it like growing up there uh, I had a great childhood you know come from a family of five boys uh, my poor mother they say <laughs> but uh, no we good crack together in the house um, my eldest brother William brought me to the club at eight years of age the Neilstown Boxing Club and uh, that's where it took off for me um, like I said it was an empty school hall Walked in through the doors, couldn't understand how this was a boxing club until 20 minutes later when there was bags hanging from gears and a boxing ring was erected in the corner. This was Neilstown Boxing Club for 30 years um, and everything had to be taken back down two hours later. 
to allow for the students to use the, the, so, the hall the next so, day. So. so it literally started as an empty <laughs> hall and finished as an empty hall. But in the meantime, there was a ring, as you said, there, there was bags hanging. But this, this was assembled and deassembled almost like a circus on a twice-weekly basis or whatever? Yeah, twice a week, Mondays and Wednesdays. And I remember like, that was part of my job coming in as a, as a newcomer, you know, eight and nine years of age, helping set up the, the gym. But as it went on a couple of years later then, I'd be standing back and letting the newcomers come in and set up the ring and the bags. But that was it, yeah. We just totally escaped. It was a fantastic environment. Lots of, made lots of friends, some great coaches in, in on board at the time. And we were just learning our trade, learning the basics. Didn't have a clue how to box. Um, and had some great days there, you know, um, some, some hard sparring and lots of bloody noses. <laughs> but uh, it, was, it was really, really enjoyable. Obviously, you started boxing there, I think it was about 11. And by all accounts, like, like boxing is hard. Some make it, some don't. But you had a rough couple of years, I think it was, was it three All-Irelands in a row. Sport can be very unforgiving. Yeah. And, you know, as a young lad, you're still trying to figure out what you want in life and who you really are and try and find some kind of an identity. And like, like I said, I had great parents and I had great coaches, which allowed me enjoy my sport, you know, and, and I really did enjoy it. But getting the three all the finals and reaching them and then getting be in the national stage in Dublin, it's heartbreaking. And I was staring retirement in the face at 14 years of age. I was thinking, this is not for me, it's heartbreaking. I'm not good enough, I'm not strong enough. But my coach at the time, Noel Humpson, he really encouraged me and says, Kenneth, you have talent there, there's talent there, come on, we give it one more go. And I went back to the club and we trained again. And fourth year, the, the fourth attempt, I came back and I, I won my first Irish title. Um, and that was a special occasion because I'd been trying so hard and uh, just to be on that podium as the champion of Ireland at 14 years of age was, was I made it all worth it. it. It was a fair old slog at that stage. Like I said, you went there at eight, you're, you're assembling the, the ring, if you like, you earn your stripes. How close as that, was that young Kenneth Egan teenager from saying, listen, I had enough, I'm walking away from the whole thing. Yeah, look, I battled with it many times. And I always said this myself, like, I'm not the most talented, I was never the most talented athlete in, in the club, far from it. And even when I went up into the senior level, into the high-performance unit, I was never the most talented. Um, there was lads there with more talent on their little finger than I had in my whole body. But they didn't have the discipline or the dedication or the, you know, the work ethic. And they came and they left. And the team kept changing. Every year, new lads would come in, lads would get beaten. But I remained there all the time. Um, I was just stubborn I think and just really got stuck into the training when I got beaten in competitions I'd be back I'd be forced on the line getting ready to go again always willing to learn that extra little bit you know um, and that's I think what was important for me I, I, like there was times where I, I had enough of it and I was sick of it and wanted to call it a day but there was always that encouragement at home my mum and dad always encouraged me to go back into the sport and my eldest brother you know give it another go um, and I think that was what really made it for me. You described your mum as Ma Egan and, and the boss. <laughs> the, the boss she won't be impressed with this now on the TV. <laughs> the boss, Ma the boss of the estate. Yeah. Explain that one to us. Not the boss of the estate, but boss of the house, right. of course. You can imagine her rearing five boys. Uh, but uh, when my mum spoke, you listened. But uh, no, she, she was a great, great parent. Um, and I don't know where the Ma Egan came from, but, <laughs> but it stuck, you know. But all my brothers had friends who they'd bring over. I mean, mum would feed, she'd feed the estate if she could, you know. All the lads would be coming in, she'd be throwing up all sorts of grub onto the table. It was an open door policy in my house. Uh, right through all the, all the brothers, you know. Um, so they all used to call her Ma Egan. One of the Ma Egan's <laughs> for a bit of grub. But, and, you know, she'd oblige to be food there all the time. But, uh, yeah, she's, a, she's the rock of the family, you know. She's, she's a great woman. Um, and she always encouraged me just to keep doing my best, keep doing my best. Your time will come, she used to say to me. Your time will come. And that's when I lost Irish titles, when I lost, didn't qualify for Athens. You yeah. know, nearly didn't qualify for Be Beijing. Your time will come. Just keep going back. Keep knocking on the door. And she was right. She's not originally from Dublin. She's described as a country woman. She's a Kilkenny woman. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all around the final would always be a great day in our house. Because, you know, yeah. nine times out of ten, Kilkenny be in the final. <laughs> but, uh, 
Yeah, I, I'd often think if she had a settled in Kilkenny and she had five boys, how many of us actually would be playing on <laughs> the Kilkenny team? But in saying that now, I'm not very good at any other sports, but I'm not bad. Well, I'm not great at football or, you know, hurling or gab, but boxing I always veered to, you know, that's, that yeah. was the one that I enjoyed and I found that I had a bit of talent in, so that's why I stuck with it. Um, I tried a lot of other sports, but just didn't really, it didn't really click for me, you know. So your mum, Ma, or let's give her a proper name, Maeve May Egan, she's the... Maura Egan. Maura Egan, Maura yeah, Egan, yeah, sorry, yeah. Maura Egan. She's the boss of the house. Your dad, Paul, had he got a love for boxing? Like, was boxing, I know you went at eight with, with your yeah. brother, but had your dad ever boxed or...? He was never into boxing, but he was into football. He played football, he was younger. Um, he worked in the Green Hill Hotel and there was a team up there back in the 70s. So he, he loved football now. Um, but my eldest brother, like I said, he's the one that got into boxing in the first place in Neilstown. We were living in Neilstown for two years, or a couple of years before we moved out to Clendalkin. And he, he, he obviously started there when he was eight or nine, and then he was about 16 or 17 before he brought me over. Um, we all tried boxing in the family, the five was apart from one. Because uh, this one in particular, Tony, he didn't like getting punched in the face. So he didn't, he didn't bother <laughs> with it. But the rest of us gave it a go. My youngest brother, John, was very, very good, very promising. He won an Irish title, a novice title. Um, He's very proud of that novice title as well. But uh, yeah, he was good as well, but he, he, he couldn't, he didn't stick it out. Um, I was the only one that was kind of dogged enough to, and it's not, it's, it's, it's a hard old game. It is, any kind of sport at the highest level. It's very unrewarding when you're, you're you know, training, out running on those rainy nights and you're doing the sessions when your mates are off doing other things. And it's, it's, it's very solitary kind of a lifestyle you live. Um, and it's not for everyone, you know? So the, the journey to the Olympics, you get there in 2008, the, the long journey, if you like, I suppose, we have to go back to, to 2004, and I suppose the disappointment of 2004 is what probably fueled you to, to get to what, what was 2008. Yeah. Talk to us about 2004 first. Okay. So the high performance was set up in 2003, the end of 2003, so I wasn't really going yet. We hadn't really uh, gelled, if you like, you know, we were still learning, and the coaches were learning about this high performance unit as well, Gary Keegan, and Billy Walton Zor, um, and then all the fighters that were on, on board at the time. So we were just learning at the time and we were going to France and Germany and getting our asses kicked more or less because we weren't fit enough, we weren't strong yeah. enough. So we had to really go back to the, back to the drawing board and increase our training, uh, increase our output and that type of stuff and build on our cardio fitness and stuff. And that all happened then, we were moving steady. And then obviously the Olympic, Olympic qualifiers came around in 2004. And genuinely, being honest with you, I didn't believe I was good enough to be an Olympian because I wasn't really committed to the cause. I was still competing at the highest level, if you like, but then on my downtime, I was drinking and I was burning the candle at both ends. So deep down, I didn't believe that I, I deserved an Olympic tracksuit on that team in 2004. That's being honest with you. So I didn't qualify. I, I underperformed in three qualifiers and that was it. I was going to retire from 2004. Like I said, Andy Lee was the only one that qualified. He flew out to, to Athens um, and represented Ireland on his own, him and Billy Walsh, you know, and that was... Um, like, I, I was envious of Andy at the time because I was older than Andy, had more experience. Yeah. But yeah, he came under the radar, qualified, and off he went. So a big commitment for me then to qualify or to, to, to sit down and go, right, I'm going to come back into this sport and commit four more years of my life not knowing the outcome. And that's what you're effectively doing. Yeah. Four years of your life not knowing the outcome. So all the sacrifice, all the training, all the travelling. But I, I believed in the structure that was being set up in the high performance. I believed in the coaches and I believed in Gary Keegan. There was something good happening here. We were making all these connections with different countries. We were training in the best environments where we needed to be. And I wanted more of that. I wanted, I remember Zor when he landed from Georgia, he hadn't much English. And he said, I said to him, Zor, I says, uh, someone asked him, what you thought of me out of, what I regarded myself out of 10. And I said, I don't know, about an eight out of 10. And Zor said, no, you're a two out of 10. Wow. Yeah. So that's the exact kick in the arse I needed. I said, okay, Zor, make me an eight out of 10. 
And we started that journey together. And yeah. four years later, I'm, I'm on an Olympic podium. Your life story is so interesting, but even your, your, your journey to those Olympics aren't straightforward. Because like you said there, there was, there was the first round of qualifiers, not successful, and, and, and you, were, you were pretty much on your last chance to, to get a ticket on the plane. Yeah. When you look back at it, like, you know, my first qualifier was in Chicago, got beaten over there, didn't qualify. Then the second one was in Pascar in Olympic year. Uh, and then obviously the last one then in Athens in, t in, in the April of 2008 three or four months before the games even start. I'm still not an Olympian. And those lads qualifying around me, Paddy Barnes qualified and John Joe Nevin was qualifying. So I was going, oh, here we go again. Yeah. Deja vu here, you know. Um, and I was really worried about at that stage because, you know, if I didn't qualify, what was it going to be? What was it going to be remembered as, you know? And, uh, you know, okay, I had eight senior titles and loads of multinational medals and European medals and all those things, but I wanted to be the Olympian. Yeah. I wanted to have the tracksuit with the five rings on it. Were you, were, you, were you losing some of those qualifiers in your head, do you think? I was jumping, jumping the gun all the time, okay. looking at the draw. Who, am I who do I need to beat to qualify? Forgot about the other people before the, that qualifying fight. And that was, a, that was to my detriment all the time. So I changed that kind of a, a mentality then when, in the last qualifier. And I remember I was up in the, the office, walked up to the office in the high performance and Gary Keegan was doing his office stuff and I walked in and I, and I, in a panic and I'm pacing up and down the office floor yeah. and Gary's looking at me. And uh, I says, Gary, last qualifier, but don't qualify. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I've nothing else to do. I've nothing else to fall back on. I'm only going to be an eight-time senior champion. That's all I remember that. And I'm panicking, I'm panicking. Kenneth, he says, stop. And he looked into me in the eyes. He says, what's the session you have next? What do you mean? What are you doing now? Well, we have a bag session on the floor. Just go down and do your bag session. Stay in the here and now. Focus on your bag session and worry about nothing else. And the penny dropped there for me, you know. I was, I was too far gone in my head all the time, looking too yeah. far into the future, worrying about things that I had no control over. So I had control over that bag session. So off I went down and focused on the bag session. And I started to think that way, staying in the here and the now, controlling what I could control. And session by session, I kept doing that. And then all of a sudden, we're over in uh, the qualifiers in Greece. And I didn't, one thing that I didn't do before, I didn't look at the draw. Focused Brilliant. on the first opponent. First round. Got that out of the way. Second round and so on. And all of a sudden, I'm in a semi-final boxing the German to qualify. And when I dropped to my knees after beating that, that German, like... That was it. The monkey was off me back. That's where I won my medal in Beijing. I just I won it in Athens on that day. I went to Beijing to collect it because the pressure was off me of being that Olympian. Yeah. And that was it. You know, it was just I could enjoy the Olympics then. So you qualify for the Olympics. You head to Beijing, and again, remarkable journey there. And one thing that struck me as well is like when it comes to boxing, the amount the amount of fights or the amount of hurdles you have to overcome essentially to get a medal like you you had you had three before you were yeah, you, yeah. you were guaranteed a medal. like you, you know we think of athletes that maybe got a heat semi-final and they're into a mm, final and then mm. it's there but in total you had five fights in beijing yeah five fights to a final that's right um didn't get any boys or anything but look i went to bed that night we got the draw i was told who was fighting first julius jackson from virgin islands who had beaten the world championships in chicago a couple of months previous so i knew it could be him um all the lads went to the opening ceremony. I was the only one that stepped back in the village because I was fighting the next day. And I didn't mind that. And I missed the closing ceremony because I was being tested. I was drug tested. So I missed the opening and the closing ceremony, but I come home with an Olympic medal. Yeah. So everyone's Olympics is different, you know. Um, but I didn't mind that, you know. And, and again, just took the draw as I came. Every day they tell me who I was fighting next. Okay, let's look at the plan. Analysis. What's the strong points? What's his weak points? What we do in the first round? 
really getting into it, you know, and, and having fun. I was loving it, I was smiling. And Billy Walsh always said, when Kenneth's in the dressing room, 15 minutes before a fight and he's slagging someone or he's having the crack, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's when he knows he's on song. And that's what I was like. I was having the bouncing off people. When I wrap my hands, then I focus a little bit. And that's it, you know, the hard work was done. It was just going out and performing. So when you win the third fight, so you're at this, this stage you're guaranteed a bronze medal. That's, that's an interesting place to be, because suppose like half of the people would say, listen, the pressure's off, you're in bonus territory. You've spent so long trying to get to the Olympics, you now got there, you now guaranteed a medal. But equally, you're two fights away from what would be your dream. Like, there must be a bit of, bit of conflict in your own head. Like, when I reached the, 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 the last day, yeah. So I had to win the last day fight against uh, Washington Silva from Brazil. Now, again, this goes back to the high performance and how important it was for us to, to, to have that structure because we, we were in a training camp in the Philippines, up in the mountains, in 2005, where I sparred the Brazilian. The same Brazilian who I kind of beat quite yeah. easily in the spar. So I knew myself, when I seen him on the draw, he's mine, I can beat this fella. So I wasn't thinking ahead now who I had next. I said, I can beat this Brazilian. And I went out and I beat him 8-0 or 8-1 or something. Something quite, quite easy. And then I was in medal territory. I beat him then. I had the medal. That was it. Yeah. The pressure was totally off, you know. But I was still enjoying myself, having fun. And then I guess the news that I'm fighting Tony Jeffries in the semi-final. He was a good, 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 good kid. But I knew I had the beating of him as well because I'd beaten him previously. Again, with all these different various competitions we had. And uh, there was no way he was beating me in that semi-final by hook or by crook, I was just better than him. Um, and then obviously beating him then, that was it then. You know, going, going into Olympic final was just amazing. So you're into a final, you're guaranteed a silver, you want to go for gold. Talk to you about that final. I remember going to bed the night before the final. Okay. And I'm in the Olympic Village and I'm lying in my bed and uh, like, I slept that night with a smile on my face. You know, thinking the worst that can happen, I can go home with a silver. But I knew my opponent who I was fighting. Zhang in the final and I'd seen him in previous competitions and Darren Sunderland, Lord rest his soul, stuck his head in the window or in the door. He had already secured a bronze after getting beaten mm. by James DeGale. Best of luck tomorrow, Ken, he said. I said, cheers, pal. Went to bed that night, great night's sleep. We were up the next morning to go to the weigh-in and uh, I was feeling really good about myself, but nice and relaxed. Weight was all good and we were leaving the Olympic Village, me and Billy, and Ronaldinho was coming in. <laughs> this is about half seven in the morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he, let's say he had a lot of tipple on him. Well oiled, him <laughs> yeah, one of his yeah. teammates, I don't know who he was. And me looked at Billy and goes, isn't it gas? <laughs> We're going out here to fight an Olympic final and he's he coming back <laughs> with a belly full of beer. It was great though, you know. <laughs> and I remember locking eyes with my opponent in the, at the weigh-in. I gave him a nod, you know. I, I genuinely believed I had the beating of him. He was tall, he was big target. At, yeah. at this stage, are you worried at all about the judging or, or how this Not is going to go? Not you, no, You're no. just focused. A silly thing to say, probably naive. I never thought you know, that was fighting a Chinese person in China. I was just seeing an opponent. Didn't yeah. think that the judges would have been swayed. But look, I've tried judging. It's very, very hard. And with a crowd like that around you, you're hitting a button at a certain time. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough thing to do. Yeah. Um, and I feel the final itself, my first round let me down. Like, I was two points after the first round. So I was, and it's the first time in the whole Olympics that I was behind. I'm a counter-puncher, so I like people coming at me. So yeah. a counter puncher means I make them miss, I counter punch and score. That's what, so I'm always on the back foot. But when he was too ahead after the first round, I had to kind of go a little bit forward. But I still think I landed scores that he got. Human error, the, the judges were hitting the wrong, wrong colour, red and blue, you know. So yeah. uh, I sat down, I was behind again, and, and I could hear the crowd cheering, the Chinese crowd hearing, cheering when I scored a great shot. And I was thinking, Jesus, this is not right. And I look back at the fight then a couple of months after the Olympics, and like, I genuinely won, thought I won by two or three points. Yeah. But look, if I was offered that silver medal at the start, I would have took it with both hands. You know, when that final bell rang, 
you know, um, the, the thought that came into my head was, I won't say on, <laughs> on the TV, but it was like, what the F do I do now? Right. So that was it. I wanted to stay in that Olympic ring forever. I wanted yeah. to have a thousand rounds of boxing because it was over. My, that struggle all the way from eight years of age, right through to be the Olympian, to failing, to qualifying, now the Olympics was over. And I'm thinking, Jesus, what, what do I do now? And that's a scary place to be. It's scary. <laughs> Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, you win an absolute dream, silver medal. And uh, I just want you to have a quick look at this. This is the homecoming when you, uh, when you arrive back in Dublin with that silver medal. So we have a little look at that. It's hairs in the back of the neck, me watching that, let alone you. How do you feel, Kenneth, like, when you watch that? We've walked through that airport so many times as a team with medals, and you wouldn't you'd have an old reporter in the corner and a journalist in the other corner. You know, this was a different animal because it just showed how big the Olympic Games is and was for us. Three, a team of five, I'm not going to leave out the other two lads, John Joe Nevin and John Joe Joyce, but a team of five going over there to represent and come back with three medals. Uh, it was an amazing achievement, first and foremost, and to come back to that, Great to see so many young people there, the kids cheering us on, and, and that was it was it was brilliant. It really was. It was great for the country, exactly what we needed, you know. Um, and uh, to be part of that now, to be to be the reason there was a crowd in that airport there today, back in 2008, it's just it's it's a great memory. And then you arrive back in Clondalk, and then again the celebrations continue and continue. <laughs> and you see you see all the people who are there with you, I suppose, yeah, yeah, every step of the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you know, like. I'd be walking to the shop. These kids would know me from growing up and running and training all the time. And, you know, to come back as a local hero from Clendalk, and, you know, uh, it, it proves that anything is possible. Genuinely, anything is... If you put the work in and sacrifice and push yourself and, and push those doubts to the side that you, you can achieve. I'm a normal Joe so from a normal housing estate that just loved the sport and got stuck in and learned his trade from some fantastic coaches. And a bit of guidance there has me on an Olympic podium.
So Kenneth, we saw the scenes there, remarkable scenes. You arrive back from the Olympics and you are the poster boy. You're the person everybody wants to talk to. The, the, the instant fame, I suppose. Were you, were you ready for that? No. <laughs> That's just being straight out with you, you know. To come back with a medal, like we said, I come back to the airport with numbers of medals, didn't have that kind of media attention. Um, so it was very, very different for me. Uh, uh, wanting to be interviewed on a regular basis and photographed and all those things. And like, don't forget, we won three medals. So yeah. Darren was quiet, he stuck to himself. He wanted to go professional, he wanted to be world champion. He got straight back into the gym. Paddy Barnes, obviously from Belfast, so he wasn't really affected up his end. So I kind of, but I brought it on myself, to be honest with you, you know. In what way? When I come back from the games, I was thinking, right, I can relax now, job is done, I'm going to just chill out now. And we've no structure in place for us to come back into the gym floor, back into the high performance. Um, and that was probably a mistake on their part, but I'm not blaming anyone, you know, mm. which I did for many, many a year, but like, there was nothing, there was no callback. So it was just a free for all. Yeah. And I got sucked into that. So people pat me on the back and telling me it was brilliant and come on, let's go for a drink. And I was saying, yeah, sure, look, I'm after winning the medal. Why not have a few points here? And of course, it was never a few points with me, you know, it was, it yeah. was heavy drinking, uh, binges, sessions, celebrating, having the crack, you know, and uh, that went down for a, for, for a period of time. And also there was interest from professional promoters yeah. looking for me to sign over and that kind of added extra pressure onto me. That And I, look, I wasn't responsible. Right. I couldn't make big decisions like that. And while I could keep them on the long finger, all these different people, I was drinking. You know, I didn't want to make big decisions. Jesus, I, hadn't got the, I wasn't in the right frame of mind. There's an awful lot in that. I suppose if we, if we you describe yourself as a, as a binge drinker, and like, I, I know we touched on it earlier yeah. on, that you were even sort of binge drinking, but being clever about it, even when you were, you were successful earlier on in your career. Describe to me, I suppose, that the practicalities of, of, of what essentially your, your drinking was as, as, a, as, a binge, as a binge drinker. Like, any typical, typical, typical occasion, you know, I'd, I would start on a Friday, like a normal person would after a hard day's work. I'd sit with the lads, have a few drinks, uh, probably on going into a Saturday, and then them lads would have to go off because they'd be responsible and do things or yeah. go back to work on the Monday, where I would just continue, you know? And like after a session, I, you know, you'd be sitting in a pub in a corner somewhere, high-fiving some 70-year-old, telling them jokes, you know? Like, that's not normal. Yeah. As long as I had someone to drink with, it didn't matter who I was drinking with. Um, and that was the problem, you see, so just spoiled our control. So, but. After the binges, I'd go back training. I'd try and focus and do a bit of running, a bit of training, uh, go back into the high performance. And once competition was over again, back on it again. Um, but all that, that journey, I suppose, from, like, it took me 18 years to get to my peak of my Mount Everest, right, qualifying for those games. Yeah. 18 years of sacrifice, of training, all those things. It took me two years to hit rock bottom. So those two years, I don't remember much of the two years uh, from 2008 to 2010 because I was really heavy drinking sessions and, and uh, really strong binges and you know, let down an awful lot of people, hurt an awful lot of people, turned into a horrible, horrible person. Um, that's what the drinking brought me into that real dark place. Um, and look, I'm very, very lucky that I got sobriety at 30 years of age. Mm. Very, very lucky. Um, but yeah, I became a horrible person. My mother was worried sick. Uh, caused havoc in relationships, um, you know, that I'm not proud of and, you know, but I've made amends to an awful lot of people that I could make amends to. Um, schools that I'd let down, kids waiting for me to walk up with the medal, then with banners outside, welcome Kenny, no sign of Kenneth, or I was away drinking yeah. somewhere. So I just, 
wasn't a nice person to be around and I kind of people started to disconnect from me and didn't want to be around me and um, I just didn't want to make those big decisions so while I was on the putting that to the side I was drinking and drinking very very heavily. It's a real contrast though to the public persona that you had in the ring and even sort of outside the ring at the time that you were this super confident person but like you said there there was there was issues you had within yourself that obviously was fueling into what became the major issue with the with the alcohol yeah yeah like and like for me even when i dropped to my knees like i said in, in that olympic final like what the hell do i do now you know like because i had no identity um and I, I do say you can't i can't walk into the bank of ireland or any bank with it with a olympic medal and ask for a mortgage it doesn't work that way, yeah. you know. So it was scary for me then, even looking at what's next for Kenny Egan. And when I didn't decide to go to America and sign all those contracts, and I offered big money, by the way, you know, massive, colossal money. But I was just this naive young lad, really, that was in a bubble for 10 years, traveling around the world, living out of a suitcase, having to make decisions and sign contracts that would keep me in contract for 10, 15 years. I wasn't ready for that. And I felt, if I sign this dotted line here now, I'm selling these lads a fraud. These lads think I'm someone that I'm not. They think I'm an Olympic silver medalist standing on a podium that's a superhero, when really I'm a disaster, a walking disaster who just continuously lets people down, continuously gets drunk, falls around the place. That's not someone that's going to sign a dotted line. And I stepped away at the last minute and said, thanks, but no thanks. I needed to get me recovery. That was more important to me than, than signing on a, a dotted line for X amount of money. Obviously, you kind of touched on it there. You're offered huge money, as you said, to turn pro. Turn pro. You said there you felt, which is really interesting. You felt you were selling them a dud because you weren't ready for it. But equally, that I, I suppose, in a really negative way, fuels into the problem that you have. You have just makes it even worse. Like my self worth was very low at the time. You know, although I had the medal, but I just couldn't get out of this dark, dark cloud that was over me, and that massive drinking binges that left me in the, depressed and left me full of anxiety and all those things. Um, so it was a, a vicious circle and when I did try and get out of it I'd stay sober for a number of weeks go back training, feel half decent but then I couldn't stay off it and that was the thing staying, stopping drinking is one thing but staying stopped is another mm. I couldn't do um, and that was just you know, deja vu groundhog day type of stuff um, and the drinking was getting worse the benders were getting longer the, 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 the you know, I wasn't looking after myself wasn't, you know, I was wearing the same jeans for God knows how many days. You know, just horrible stuff. Um, and uh, like the, the, the pub that I come home to, you know, with the open top bus was an amazing, a great day. Two weeks later, I'm holding the same pub up, getting sick all over the car park on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. You know, these are the same kids that seen me with the medal around my neck and now yeah. I'm doing this. That's not right, you know? Uh, but it took me two years of, of that madness and a few little things, little seeds that were planted in my head. And the two stories I'll tell you, if you, if you allow me. Uh, Absolutely. One, obviously, was, uh, like I said, I looked up to Darren Sutherland. He was a, an amazing athlete. Yeah. Right? For, if someone's for so big to make the weight he did, it took him to be an athlete 24-7. An amazing, amazing athlete. Mm. Um, never drank, total professional. And he always said, I'm going to go professional and win a world title. And I believed him. So he came back from the games all happy with himself with the bronze and off he went, focused and off he went to England training and turned to pro. If anyone was going to commit suicide in those two years, it would have been me from the way I was drinking and the way I, I destroyed myself. And I remember it being in town one day, early in the day, two or three o'clock, very, very drunk in city centre, and the phone rang. And I uh, picked up the phone. Still to this day, I don't know who rang me, but they had rang me to let me know that Darren had committed suicide. And I, I was devastated, mm. as you can imagine. 
But in my crazy thinking at the time was, right, well, he's going to have to be brought home from England. They're going to have to take a few days, the funeral, etc., etc. So I won't be required back into training camp. We're going to have a, an extended break, which will allow me to drink even more. That's, that's where you and were. That kind of horrible, selfish, self-centred, horrible person I was. I'm thinking of extending my binge, full of sorrow, full of sadness for Darren, but yeah, I won't be questioning on me drinking now. I can hide under this kind of a funeral. Crazy stuff. Mm. That's shameful. But I'm okay to say that now because I'm, I'm yeah. at peace with myself. And the second story would be, these are all little things that kind of made me stand up and say, you know, kind of, you have to change here. Something needs yeah. to change because this is not right. And my mum doesn't like me telling this story, but I'll tell it anyway. Like, and, and I'm lying in the bed one day again after a binge, after a couple of days drinking. I'm still at home at this stage after the games. And my mum kicks the bed and asks me to go for a drive with her. And uh, I did not want to go anywhere. I was hungover. But she, I got into the car. I was driving. She can't drive. So she told me to go left and right and up the road. At dawn, that means that we were getting to, the, to a graveyard where she'd buried two sons previous, long before I came along. Mm. And I'm standing there and it's cold and it's starting to rain and I'm just freezing. I just want to be back in my bed. And my mum is on her knees cleaning the, the grave. And I'm thinking, well, she just wants to clean the grave and I bring her home. But she's on her knees and she looks up at me and she's begging me, Kenna, if you don't stop drinking, you're going to end up here with the two lads. And uh, like, how dare I have my mum do that to try and stop me from drinking? She tried everything else, you know. And that's shameful as well. Mm. You know, that's, but that's the person I was back then, you know. And she tried everything to try and make me stop. And I drank after those occasions. But that's, I knew there was something stored in me that I needed yeah. to stop. And I, obviously I was getting into AA at the time. Uh, which was a fantastic thing for me to get back into, you know, and, and there was a lot of pennies being dropped in AA as well, and, and it just, that was it, I just had enough, and, you know, decided that I can't keep doing this, this is not, this is not healthy for me, I'm going to end up in an awful, an awful worse place here, so, I kind of accepted the defeat, couldn't beat the alcohol anymore, and when I accepted that, I came out the winner, you know, life goes on without alcohol, and, and it's, it's, it was a, that's my biggest achievement to date, is my sobriety on a daily basis. What was, because obviously they're two huge moments, you know, the, the loss of a friend that, that didn't click you into gear and what, what, what your mother said mm -hmm. to you at the graveyard. What was essentially so rock bottom that made you say, hang on, this, this has to stop? It was just every time I drank, there was always the same outcome, you know, the hangovers, the carnage, the lies, letting people down. And it was just, you know, and I, I remember my last drink, I'm actually coming up to 11 years now, uh, sobriety and I remember I was in Nice and my mum came into a pub she found me in Nice I don't know how she found me come on son come home she said and I put the drink down I haven't drank since mm. so I think it was a number of things that were just setting in my brain that were just trying to reset me and you know reprogram me to say I can't keep living like this and it was like acceptance it's the first step in Alcoholics Anonymous accept that you're powerless over alcohol and your life has become unmanageable but the first part of that step is acceptance and I accepted that day. I said, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And that was the last time I drank. That was the 12th of August, 2010. I haven't drank since. Do you, Kenneth, do you recognise that person? Is that person someone that you, you, you failed to even sort of associate yourself with? Or equally, is, is what happened and, and that person very important because, because, it, because you came through that and, and like essentially you, you won that fight? Yeah, yeah. Like, I can't forget about my past, yeah. okay? But I, I don't dwell on it. Like, and don't get me wrong, I've had some great times throughout my career, drinking and not drinking. Some great, you know, fun times with the lads and all those things. But you get to a stage where the good times outweigh the bad. 
or the bad out way to go that you say yeah, enough's enough. So I use the analogy where like life is like I'm driving in a car, I'm looking at a windscreen, and what you see is the present day, what's happening. Trees going by, boards flying. That's what you see, that's me in the here and now. And every now and again, I look in the rearview mirror and look at my past. Every now and again, just to see where I've come from. And I've come a long, long way, inside and outside of boxing. Mm. But more, more importantly, outside of boxing, where I've come. Because I was at that, in that Olympic final, looking at that, that ring, thinking, what do I do now? I was isolated, I was anxious, I was fearful, didn't know what was gonna, life was going to throw at me. And now I'm, I'm, I'm quite content in the person I am today. But I still think there needs to be more done to probably protect athletes across all sports. And the question I've always asked as well is, you know, and I said it to the young lads as well before Rio, these are all 18, 19, 20 years of age in that prime. But the question I'd ask them was, what does retirement look like to you? Yeah. Now, that's a question that you don't want to hear when you're in your prime. They'd be thinking, what's he talking about? But these guys aren't all going to be Olympians. They mm. won't all be Olympic medalists. They could be deselected, could pick up an injury, couldn't, probably can't make weight anymore, all these different factors. So what do you do outside of boxing? And the sooner you know what you're going to do outside of your sport, the better. Whether it's a dual uh, relationship with study and compete at the same time. It can be done. You're only yeah. training four hours a day or whatever. So that's the question. And I keep reinforcing that to young people. Is have a get-out clause. Have something that you can fall back on. That just leaves less pressure on you then to have to perform and have to achieve and have to win medals. Um, and I think that can allow athletes then really, really perform at the highest level. Boxing has been such an important and major part of your life, clearly. Where was boxing in your life or where was it placed in your life for those, those dark two years that you had? When I come back from Beijing and the medal and the, the notoriety I brought and the fame and all those things, I coursed that medal. I wanted to throw that medal away, you know? Why? Because if I hadn't won the medal, I would have come back from the games just a normal Joe Soap, you know? Uh, and, but again, on the same note, that medal got me into recovery quicker. Right. Because of the way I drank and the way I behaved propelled my drinking pattern even further. So it was a blessing in disguise. Two years later after the games, I'm in, I'm in recovery, you know? Um, and I remember in 2010, when I did get recovery, when I was sober, I was sober two years, there's a lovely big picture in my local pub of me with the medal. Mm. Lovely big, big one in the bar. And I had visions back then in 2010 of thinking in 10 years time, if I keep drinking, I'm gonna be at that bar, nudging some 18 year old young lad, and saying, do you know who that is up there? That's Kenneth Egan. Any chance you can buy me a point? Wow, yeah. Yeah, and that's real. I get a fright even saying that. Yeah. But luckily enough, I've stayed sober, and now I'm not in that position. But that is real. That frightens me, because that's exactly where I would have ended up. So that's one of the moments that stands out you to know, you as regards, you know, when those points are referenced along the way yeah. to go. Look, like, how been. shameful is that? Not admitting that I was powerless over the alcohol, continuing drinking, asking young lads to buy me a point because I've no money. Mm. I probably still live in my mum's house in the front room. You know this type of thing? Yeah. The medal tucked away somewhere and living that life. That's it's frightening. Obviously, it was very dark. But you haven't just turned it around on your own personal life, but you've also, you know, you're helping others as well. You're now an addiction counsellor. How, how, how did you go down that road or how important was that road to you to say, listen, I just don't want to get myself right and keep myself right, let's say. You also want to help others. When I got recovery, it took me, like I said, two years after the Games when I, I started, I got sober on the 10th of August. That was my start of my journey then into figuring out why I was drinking the way I was drinking, um, why I became addicted to alcohol and, and how I got sober. And once I got that and went back to college, I was never in, into school, school, and didn't like teachers, didn't like authority, didn't like any of that. But I went back as a mature student and it was a different kind of a setup. 
different environment, which I really enjoyed. And uh, when I got that diploma under my belt, uh, I wanted to continue then and go on and do a degree in counselling psychotherapy. Um, now, I'm not saying I went out there to, to heal everybody. It's impossible, you know. But yeah. I know deep down that I've helped a number of people in the last couple of years that I've been practising. And it's a tough game to be in because you never know what's going to walk through your door. And you never know what's going to sit down in front of you. And you never know what's going to be said. There's a lots of pain out there. Lots of pain. And to me, to be able to sit there and listen to someone for an hour, it's a privilege for me for them to feel comfortable to allow themselves, express themselves and offload whatever's going on for them. And that, it's not work for me. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And if we can make them see something a bit clearer or they can stay off X, Y and Z for a period of time, it's, the game I'm in is, is addiction. That's what I specialise in. Yeah. And sometimes it's unrewarding where people will come back, back in after a slip or, you know, sometimes you get a couple that would just say, you know what, thanks, Kenna, I've, I've, I'm doing well. A little text here and there. And that's what it's about, you know. And what is, obviously you mentioned it's rewarding there. I presume last year, the last 12, over 12 months now at this stage with the pandemic, what kind of cases are you seeing or what kind of cases has the pandemic brought up as regards people struggling with, with addictions? Yeah, like alcohol is obviously through the roof, you know. Uh, house drinking is, a, is something that's been massively uh, not really looked at and yeah. it, at this stage. I don't think everyone thinks, OK, pubs are closed, so it's not going to be too bad. But... House drinking is unregulated. People don't know what they're how much they're drinking. Parties going on till all hours of the night. Um, domestic violence, uh, relationship breakups, um, an increase in cocaine use, weed, alcohol across the board. You know, um, mm. like I'm, I'm fully booked at the moment, and it's, 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 it's tough when you're turning people away. Like you know, and that's, and this is only the start of, of this. I think because I know the lockdown is ending now soon enough, but this is going to be a ripple effect for for a number of years to come. I think. It's an amazing job to have and to give so much back to people and to be there for people. Another thing you're figuring out, if you, as if you weren't busy enough, and this goes, goes back a good while as well, you're now obviously a, a city councillor as well, you, you ran for, for Fine Gael. I suppose the obvious question is why? Yeah, like that was the question shouted from the rooftops. Back yeah. in, that was back in 2014. But again, I was at a crossroads in my life where, where you know, I had an idea of going back into college, getting that uh, addiction studies course because I was sober a number of years. And... Uh, Francis Fitzgerald approached me and asked me would I run the local elections. Now look, I'm not politically driven, mm -hmm. uh, but I did want to do good for my area. I've been all over the world ten times over, travelled all over the world, but I love coming back to Clondalkin. I'm a Clondalkin man, heart and heart. I love Clondalkin, I love the people in it. Uh, it's where I'm born and bred, and I said, look, if I can get into a position here to help my local area, I'll give it a go. And I went there, and that was a hard thing to do, to go out mm -hmm. there, not being politically driven, to knock on doors to ask for a vote, when... Some people that would love boxing and would love Kenny Egan were telling me to get the F out of my garden. And I had to kind of swallow that and walk back out of that garden. You know, I didn't react. <laughs> but that was the game I was in. And, like, that is another achievement. I went out there and I won that seat fair and square. I got the votes. Mm. People voted me in. So I had five years on a term representing my area and trying to get things done, which was hard to get things done. But I got enough done that I got elected a second time. Mm. Like, get elected the first time is fine. But to do it again... That was the ice on the cake for me because I am doing bits and pieces around my own area. It is hard to get things done, but I think I am making a little bit of a difference. It must be tough, though, because you're an Olympic hero. You're a hero in your area. In your area. 
not many city councillors are regarded as heroes. So, you know, <laughs> From a hero yeah. to a villain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so you, you, like, it's so far outside your comfort zone. Like you said, it's in many ways, yes, it's hugely important. You want to help your own local area, but it's 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 it's, it's thankless in many ways. <laughs> you know, like, there's it, so much you can do. Yeah, look, the area I live in, it's a big population, and, and like, uh, look, I don't mind it. You know, I am a people person. I don't mind people coming up to me and asking me to do things. Like, but you know, this it's Monday to Friday or Monday to Sunday. I'm up on a Sunday going getting me paper on a Sunday morning. People are coming up. Can I, Can you do X, Y, and Z? No problem. You know, my door is always open for my residents. Uh, and, and that's okay, but I do enjoy getting the few bits done that I need to get done. Um, uh, it is rewarding in that sense, but there's a lot of stuff you can't get done, and residents aren't too happy with you. You know, but like I'm only a local councillor. You know, I don't I don't own the council. <laughs> I only work <laughs> in the council. <laughs> You've always been ambitious, Kenneth. So it begs the question: Kenneth Egan, TD. In the future, you're only a young man, has a good ring to it. I don't really have an appetite to, to climb the ladder of enough. Like, like my life at the moment now is, like, I work in my therapy practice, I do a bit of coaching, a bit of boxing training, looking after a couple of young lads there. Um, I do me a bit of council work. So, look, I have my finger in a few little pies that I'm happy enough But Again, the most important thing for me is I have time now to rear my daughter, you know, uh, who's five now, and I walk her to school in the mornings, I walk her back from school, uh, spend an awful lot of time with her. And that's what sobriety has given me. It gives me the, the power to do that and make those decisions. So um, at the moment, things are going fine at the moment. So I wouldn't change what's working for me. You've been uh, brave enough to talk to us about your story and talk to us about you know, the, the struggles you had and how you let people down, in particular some of the women in your life. But uh, yeah. it sounds your, your mum's in good form. You have, a, you have a lovely daughter. And of course, you're married now Look, as well. I, so I, I definitely things are going to, well. I have to mention my wife, Karen, like, <laughs> yeah. who I was with before the games. Um, and you know, we were very much in love, but I, I got caught on that silly fame train and went on and done my own thing and treated her really, really bad. Uh, left her on the, on, the, on, the, on the side and went off and got drunk and, you know, she's seen me all over the papers. But five years after those games, I had the nerve, I think, probably the nerve to, to pick up the phone and, and, and contact her again. Now, what she replied back, I won't say on air, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't the, you know, the most liked person in the world. But I kept going back to her and going back and then she finally accepted me back into her life. And that's a massive thing for me. And that's, again, that's recovery for her and her parents to accept me back into life. Because I wasn't a nice person to her or her family. Um, and I, I'm a firm believer, good things happen to good people. Because I was sober, I was in a good place. She took me back in, not knowing what was going to happen. And, you know, we have a five-year-old daughter together. We have a house together. We got married, you know. Um, that's, that's good stuff. You know, that's, that's good for me. I'm delighted with that, you know. If I had got, that never got sober, that would have never happened. I would have not have my Kate now. Um, that's, that's what recovery gives you, you know. So, mam good, wife good, daughter good. Kenneth Egan, you're, you're in a good place. I, I'm happy at the moment, yeah. I'm quite content, you know. Um, I'm not into material stuff, you know. I just live a simple life, help people when I can, um, and do the best for my family, you know. I live in a nice little quiet housing estate, which I love. Love all the neighbours, we all get on well. Um, and that's it, just simple, keeping it simple. Great stuff, thanks for talking to us. Thank you very much. Story. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.